Heavenly Father, thank you for the book of Job. Lord, for this example of a life who endured great suffering and yet continued in worship, who asked hard questions of God, hard questions about life. Lord, the same questions that we ask in light of global pandemics, in light of cancer, in light of friends betraying and stabbing us in the back, in light of a thousand different trials and ways that we suffer in life. And so many ask this question, why does God allow suffering to continue? The same question that we read in Job. And yet Job continued in faith. In all of his questions, he did not sin. So, Lord, help us to learn from Job and to mine the treasures that you have for us through your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So, thank you to our readers. Well done. Why do people suffer? That's one of the big questions that we ask in life, isn't it? And it's one of the questions driving the book of Job. In summary, Job suffered innocently, but his friends attempted to help him by trying to help him figure out the mystery behind his suffering. Surely he did something to earn all this. And yet, Job continued to plead his innocence. He knew that he wasn't sinless, but he also knew he hadn't done anything to deserve this. Eventually, Job stopped responding to his friends and started asking God for a lawsuit. He wanted a mediator in the heavenly court of law to plead his case as if he was suing God for causing Job's suffering. Not as his adversary, but as a questioner trying to ask that question that we all ask. Why? Then, Job, then God shows up and speaks to Job out of the whirlwind and puts Job in his place by saying things like, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? And who are you to give me counsel about how to run this world? And afterwards, Job realizes that he's over his head and out of his league. And he continues to worship God despite his own suffering because God remains holy and worthy of his worship. As we unpack Job this morning, I want to share three observations from the book of Job, and then we're going to walk through uh, what we can learn from this book about the different ways that people responded to Job's suffering. The first thing to know about the book of Job is that the book of Job isn't actually about Job at all. I mean, it kind of is, but it's not about Job the book of Job is about God. And that might sound like 
just some preacher talk that we say, but think about how the book of Job begins. God is in his glory, and the sons of God, right, the angels, come before the Lord, and Satan's peacocking his feathers out and saying, see the earth and how many people I've turned away from you, God? You're not that great. They only worship you because you bless them and because you give them stuff. And the Lord says, have you considered my servant Job? Now, at this point, some people, I've heard it, maybe you have too, feel like God is just using Job as a chess piece in a chess match against Satan. And they think, is that how God treats us? Like we're just objects for his battle against the devil? A few things to notice. First off, Satan knows that he has to report to God. There is no battle here. There's permission, but there is not a battle. The second the Lord says, Satan, you're done, battle over. Instead, the Lord exalts Job not as a chess piece, but as a lighthouse, as a beacon of God's holiness in a broken and sinful world. To say, even in the midst of suffering, Job will still worship me. He doesn't love me because of the stuff I give him. He doesn't treasure me because of the treasures I have given him. He treasures me because I am holy and because I made him. Because that is the right response to who I am as the Lord. The book of Job is a living demonstration of God's holiness, which remains unscathed and undiluted in the midst of our suffering. So the book of Job isn't really about Job, even though it bears his name. God is dismantling Satan's power through Job's faithful endurance. The second thing that I love about Job is it reminds me and assures me that God is not intimidated by me. There is no question I can ask God that makes him think, you can't ask that. Or that makes God bite his nails saying, ooh, I don't know how to respond to that one. You stumped me there, Mike. Now, when we come to church, we so often feel this need to like, all right, I got to put my faith on before I walk on through these doors. And I think sometimes we should come to church and not fuel doubt or questioning. But if we have doubts and if we're asking hard questions, bring them with you. God is not afraid of the truth. He is the truth. And the truth will lead you to him. And so there's a way to ask hard questions that's all suspicious of God. 
and that erodes faith, and there's a way to ask hard questions, legitimately difficult, painful, soul-wrenching questions, to ask those questions from a place of faith. Saying, God, I don't understand. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. God is not afraid of your questioning. Remember this refrain throughout the book of Job. In all of this, Job did not sin. And third, and this highlights one of the central themes from Genesis through Revelation, from the entire Bible, is this theme that sin and death always go hand in hand. That sin and death are always together in Scripture. From Genesis chapter 3, when sin entered the world, what came on its tails? The curse of death. And so this is something that Job's friends actually got right. That suffering is the result of sin. It is. We live in a broken and fallen and corrupted world because we have rebelled, because we have sinned against a holy God, because we have said, not your will but mine be done. And yet, one thing that we need to recognize is that there is such thing as corporate sin. There is corporate guilt in the sense that sin has corrupted all of creation. And so Job did suffer from the result of sin, but it was general sin, not his specific sin. Now, as Americans, we are so individualistic, right? Take responsibility for yourself. Pull yourself up from your bootstraps. And many of those are good characteristics and attributes. Those are good. We need to take responsibility for what we have done and for our own sin. And yet at the same time, I can't save myself, right? Our salvation, the gospel itself, is inherently corporate Grace. So if you reject corporate guilt, then you need to categorically reject the concepts of being saved by another person's works. And one of the things that Job's friends did not understand is this sense of the corporate guilt of sin that we all carry. And so, suffering is always the fruit of sin. And it will continue that same way until Christ returns. That by his death and resurrection over the grave, Jesus Christ conquered sin. Therefore, he conquered death. But the work of salvation has not yet been complete until he returns in glory once again. And he finalizes our salvation when he returns by establishing the new heavens and the new earth, by enacting the final judgment. There will be judgment for sin. 
if you care about injustice and you say, why does God let all this evil happen? Then you need judgment for that evil. There will be a day of judgment and there will be a day of salvation. And we look to Christ. And so there are three general responses to Job's suffering in this story. We see that in Job's wife, through Job's friends, and through Job himself. And finally, the Lord's response. So first, Job's wife. In, verse, in chapter 2, verse 9, Job's wife, who has seen everything they have taken away, all of her children dead, and now her husband suffering from the bottom of his foot to the top of his head, covered in boils and some sort of skin disease, in great pain and agony. She turns to Job and says, are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. What has God done for you? Now, it's easy to criticize her. It's easy to set her up as a prop for how not to be. But my heart also goes out to her, doesn't it? When, when you really think about what, what Job's wife endured, if you've ever been a caregiver for someone who is sick, if you ever come along as a friend who was really suffering and in the pit of despair, you know the heavy burden that falls on us, not because of our own suffering, but because of the suffering of those we love, even though she is also suffering herself the deep pain of grief. And I think we all know people who have walked away from the faith, who have cursed God but have not yet died, but their faith has, because of suffering in their life. Libraries are full of books that have been written to answer Job's wife. How do we make sense of suffering? And one of the things I love about the Bible is that it never gives bumper sticker answers to questions like this. It never rebukes people for asking these hard questions. Over the last few weeks, I've been reading through Tim Keller's book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, uh, with a dear friend whose um, life has been marked by physical pain for a number of years. I highly recommend the book. Tim Keller's book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. And my friend's joy and faith in Christ has been so encouraging for me in our conversations. And one of the things that we've commented on a number of times that the book highlights is this statement that just because you can't see a reason behind your suffering 
doesn't mean there isn't one. Just because you can't make sense of why would God allow suffering to exist doesn't mean that God doesn't have one. In the Lord's words to Job, where were you when? So who are you to hold me accountable for things that you don't even understand? If you don't understand the things of earth, how do we think that we can understand the things of glory? The second response we see is that from Job's friends, who did so many things right until they started talking. They came and sat with him in grief for seven days. And then they tried to help. Chapters 3 through 37 are full of back and forth exchanges between Job and his friends. And they're basically saying, God is good and he will bless his children. We know that we're all sinners, so surely you've done something to deserve this. And when some of us are faced with suffering or when those around us are, our reaction is to try to figure it out. Well, what happened? What did that person do to deserve that? Rather than grieving with those who grieve, Job grieved. Job's friends grieved with Job. That was the best thing they did. When they started explaining the reason behind his suffering, they're the ones who got rebuked from the Lord. Third response we see is that from Job himself. After his wife told him to curse God and die, Job says, should we accept only good from God and not adversity? He knows that God is holy and he knows that God doesn't owe him anything. That God can do whatever God wants to do because he is holy. Job knows that he has a redeemer who sits on the throne of God. He says, but I know that my redeemer lives and at the end he will stand on the dust. I will see him myself. My eyes will look at him, not as a stranger. My heart longs within me. He longs for that day of salvation. He doesn't look at his life and grow bitter in heart. But he looks to the Lord, not as his opponent, but as his redeemer, as his savior. Even as he continually claims innocent and basically shouts at God for help and for clarity about why this is happening, he refuses to see God as his enemy. He repeatedly says, I don't understand. Please tell me what's going on. Why are you doing this? I'm innocent. This isn't right. Save me. Save me. Save me. And when we suffer, I think this is a good attitude. To honestly acknowledge your struggle instead of pretending everything's fine. But in the midst of that struggle, to approach the Lord in worship, not as God's judge. And finally, the Lord responds. 
And if you read through the Lord's response to Job, he points back to creation as evidence of his power and holiness. He asks Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Can you hold the water in your hands? Can you sustain the mountains, trees, oceans, skies, and everything that lives in them? God is God. Job is not. And this becomes painfully obvious when Job's only response is to put his mouth, to put his hand over his mouth and stop talking. And the Lord rebukes Eliphaz and his friends, saying, My anger burns against you and your friends, for you have not spoken to me what is right, as my servant Job has. I don't think those are words that any of us want to hear when we stand in God's presence. Instead, I've always told Tracy that I want my gravestone to be able to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter now into your Savior's rest. That's not what Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar heard. Instead, they were instructed to return to Job, the one they were accusing, to seek forgiveness, to make a sacrifice to the Lord, and to ask Job to pray on their behalf. Ironically, they were faced with their sin while Job was justified. And so what drives each of us, this drives each of us to consider our response to sin. Are you Job's wife? Are you his friends? Are you Job? And how do you hear the word of the Lord? Again, the main point of Job is this. God is holy and worthy of our worship, even in the midst of unresolved suffering. So if you're not a Christian, let this be the day of salvation for you. Job teaches us this lesson. That we are all well acquainted with sin, with suffering, with pandemic. In this season, none of us has been able to escape thinking about our own mortality, that there will be a day when each one of us breathes our last. Some of you have lost loved ones during the season. Others are battling physical illness, mental illness, addictions, broken marriages, and a painful ache of loneliness. And it makes sense to ask God, why, God, would you do this? I want to say this to you very clearly. God knows what is happening, and he is sovereignly allowing it to happen. But he is not far away. He sees you as he saw Job, and he hears your prayers as he heard Job's. We know that we look forward to a better Job, one who is godly, holy, upright, who fears God, and who shuns evil. To Jesus Christ, our Savior, who suffered worse and beyond what Job did. Where God protected Job's life, God gave his own son's life up for us. That God died on that cross. 
he took the full weight of suffering, more suffering than Job endured, on himself, the perfect, holy Son of God, became sin so that we could receive the righteousness of God. So that your sin and my sin, which brings death, so that your sin and my sin would be paid for, so its power over us would be canceled, that Jesus died our death so we could live his life. This is your invitation. In the midst of suffering and confusion, to look your sin in the eye and to cast its burden onto Jesus. Trust in his death and resurrection has set you free from guilt and from shame in this life. Obviously, look at Job. Look at Jesus. It doesn't mean that you will live a suffering-free life. But it means that you will be heard, you will be seen, and you will live with great hope. And if you are a Christian... Beware of becoming Job's wife and beware of becoming Job's friends who do more hurt than help. Remember Satan's initial accusation against God's holiness that people will only worship him because of the good things that they receive from God's hand. Do you, have you begun, have you begun to worship God because of the blessings he gives you because of how God makes you feel, or do you continue to bend the knee in worship because he is faithful and his steadfast love endures forever? God heard Job's prayer, and he hears yours. He sent Jesus as our living Redeemer to conquer sin and death so we will have life and hope and peace through faith in Jesus Christ. We will not curse God and die. Let this be a reminder of worship, to worship God and live. Let's pray. Almighty God, we love you, we praise you, we worship you because you alone have the words of life. You alone give hope and peace and security. And so we worship you this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.